Welcome to episode 381 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Oh, the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I'm really enjoying these ongoing conversations we're having about the armor of God. And we're back into it. Can't stop, won't stop. We're in the midst of a series all about these different components, trying to unpack what it means to put on Christ and how Paul enumerates that through this armor of God. So we're continuing in that vein. If you've missed some of the stuff, feel free to just go back, hang out, chillax, go grab yourself a great drink, some coffee or some hot chocolate or another drink if you're choosing and go listen to all the things we've talked about heretofore. But we'll be talking about this shield of faith in this particular episode. But before we get to that protective armor, before we get to taking that shield up and getting into the fight, let's talk about maybe other fights we might encourage by affirmations and denials. We love to trigger people in every episode that we can with the things that we're affirming with and uh, basically denying against. By the way, if you've just been joining the podcast recently and thought, what is this affirm and denial thing? Basically, we just appropriated this like rich tradition in the Reformed faith of yeah. standing up for things and then proclaiming or promulgating against certain things. And we just turned that into kind of like, what if we just made that not, it's stronger than a recommendation, right? And it's yeah. more than being like just annoyed by something. It's like, we're putting together a curated list week after week of the things that we're saying. We strongly come alongside these things and we strongly, I guess, more or less come against these things. And it's a pretty broad spectrum. So without further ado, I'm bearing the lead. What are you affirming with on this episode? Yeah. So one of the things that I, um, I've i learned over the last two years, my son is almost two years old now, um, you have to read when you can. You have to get this stuff in when you can. And one of the things that I have struggled with, um, almost like this is maybe overblowing, but like almost existentially struggled with is I used to read a lot of books. Like I would read a lot, just quantity wise, a lot of material. And I haven't been able to do that just because, you know, you set aside an hour of time and it turns into five minutes because the baby's crying, the dog needs to go out. You also have to do the dishes, like all this stuff comes in here. So what I'm affirming today is I'm affirming reading for comprehension, not for quantity. And I think this is something I've been really working on um, really over the last year, but but it's been a focus over the last uh, couple months here in the new year as well, is when I sit down to read something, I'm not just reading it to sort of like check it off on my Goodreads list. I'm reading it to understand. And then in some sense, I'm reading it with the goal of using it in some way. Um, so I would just encourage people... You know, sometimes I think, especially as reform people, we tend to be a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more academic. I I think we have this tendency to wear the like the quantity of stuff that we're reading as almost like a badge of honor. But if you don't remember any of that stuff, then then right. one, did you even actually really read it? Like your eyes passed over the words, but did you really read it? Um, and two, if you don't remember it and you're not putting it to use and it's not being used for the glory of God then what was the point anyways, I think is the question to ask. So I'm just saying, slow down, read good books, but read them slow enough to understand them. And don't worry so much about like your end of the year goal. Like Goodreads fosters this idea that like, 
you have your end of the year goal. You got to read X number of books and you got to maintain this pace. I don't think I even set a goal on Goodreads this year. I'm just reading slowly and just trying to get through things. Um, I've limit. I've actually limited myself uh, as far as I can to twelve full books that I'm planning on reading this year, which is a you know a pace of one a month is actually pretty slow compared to what I used to read. So I'm just trying to trying to slow down and really appropriate and understand what I'm reading a little bit more. I like that. I'm just gonna. So our podcast happens in real time. I'm going to kind of come alongside that affirmation and add a little bit of my own flavor to that. So I'm totally with you. I think at some point in your life, you come to this conviction of what's the point of digesting more things if it isn't knowledge that is applied unto wisdom. And some of that I think we just get from our understanding of how God enumerates what wisdom is in, for instance, like Proverbs. This idea of like, what's the point of learning more stuff? If that stuff not only doesn't change who you are and, of course, move you into a place or a position of, like, for instance, sanctification, but beyond that, if it's not helpful to you, if it's not helpful to others around you, if it doesn't serve, it doesn't result in more self-deprecation, so to speak, with respect to dying to self and then coming alongside and serving and yielding to others and loving others better and being more effective and efficacious in the work that you're doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all that to say, I think you're on the right path there. Now, of course, there's nothing, be, nothing wrong with reading stuff for entertainment purposes, yeah. for enjoying it, for being refreshed and rejuvenated in that stuff. But I'm with you. I think especially as there, I would say as it relates to theology, and maybe this is like a particularly like everybody who would identify with the Reformed faith. Let's just let's get in front of the fire for a second. Let me pull up the stool. Let's, let's have a family chat for a second here. And this family chat is about why are you reading the theology you're reading? Are you reading it to like be smarter? Yeah. Are you reading it so you can teach others more? Or are we reading that stuff so that we might appreciate and worship our Lord Jesus Christ more effectively and better? Are we coming to a place of greater awe in front of him? Or is it just nicer to know theological trivia so that we can apply it? Some of that's hyperbolic, but I think your challenge to all of us, the admonishment is, what are we doing with all that stuff? And we're just flying through it to say like, oh yeah, I've read the Institutes. I've read Bovinkt. Like, of course, yeah, for sure. That's great. But if at the end of the day, it yields nothing for us in the form of fruit that the Holy Spirit has grown into our lives, then why do it all together? Do something else. I spend more time with your family. Go out and take a great walk. Go for a hike. Go for a run. Do something else. So I'm with you. I think we got to be careful about the fact that it's easy to consume things for the sake of their own consumption so that we might, even in some ways, either boast in that consumption or wear it like a badge of honor versus using it in a profound way that it changes us and that we apply it unto wisdom. So all of learning, I think it'd be great if we become more wise rather than become more knowledgeable. So maybe not the direction you thought we were going to go with that, but that's where I'm at. It's pretty much exactly the direction I thought we were going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this sounds really corny, but I think this is a good um, a good heuristic to apply to any endeavor that you're going on. Um, you know, we we are very quick and and rightly so to point to the first question of the um, shorter catechism: "What's the chief end of man?" Right, and yeah. the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Um, For sure. Or if you want to go for the larger, to fully enjoy him forever. Um, we could say the same thing about what's the chief end of reading, 
to glorify God yeah. and to enjoy him forever. Yeah. What's the chief end of recording a podcast? What's the chief end of drinking a beer? What's the chief end of going for a walk sure. with my son? All it's always the same answer to enjoy God or to, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think when, when we're talking about reading and particularly theologically reading um, or theological reading, um, if, if we can't get to those two things, through the work we're doing, if we if we can't come to our task of of doing reading in theological um, practice or theological disciplines, if it's not to glorify God and it's not to enjoy Him forever, which God's Word defines those things and, and what those things are, but if it's not to do that, then it, it may actually be sin to do that. Right, um, right. Exactly. Any anything that doesn't come from faith or doesn't come out of faith is is sin for us. And so if you're not coming to this theological reading or whatever other, I don't know if you want to call it leisure task, but whatever other task that's not a not a work task or something like that, um, it, when you're spending your time on something, if you're not doing it unto the glory of God and unto the enjoyment of God, then not only is it a waste of time, but it might actually be a sinful waste of time. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Look. I think that's like as good as any, like kind of a transition into like our denial space here, but I'm going to just parlay that into what you just said. So I recently came under some conviction because, uh, so this is going to sound strange, but in, uh, in my own church, we have a Sunday evening service. It's been reimagined in a kind of way. And part of the time during that service, they're doing some kind of like more practical living, practical application things. And there'll be different Sunday evenings where they're having, let's say, like a, not like a council, but like a, like a group, a panel get together and, and yeah. talk about some things. So next month, I was asked to be part of a panel about how to answer the question, how do you study God's word? Yeah. And I, I only chuckle with that because I know why they're asking me. They're asking me because they think I'm eggheaded more than average. And the conviction I came under there was that the question is, is a little bit like misdirected. And it somehow is as if like there are certain people that have their corner on like the right things to read, the right things to listen to. Somehow like they're smarter and more learned than average. And what I came away with is it doesn't matter, right? Like that, that could be like the wrong emphasis. Yeah. That it's not about like what you've read or the experience of your life or like the pedagogy you had per se. Those things I think could, by the power of God, increase some degree of understanding who he is. But if like they're just like misapplied or misappropriated or not even adeptly used, then it's all for naught. Because I'd rather learn from the person who says like, maybe they're, and I mean no offense to this, like simple-minded, but they're trusting after the Lord. They're deeply rooted in the scriptures. Their prayer life is deep and authentic and genuine and genteel. That's the person that we ought to be asking, what does it mean to study the scriptures? What does it mean to meditate on the word of God? Because that is the person who is so thoroughly convicted and convinced by that word that their life is almost immediately changed in everything that they're learning. This is not to say like there aren't deserts in that person's life, but that it is they apply themselves onto a relationship with the Lord who has invited them into that community by his saving grace. And as a result of that is connected by means of that sheer relationship, not by means of like the books they pick up or the things they think they ought to read, or the things on the margin, or the sophistication of the ideas that they feel like they ought to consume, so they have a higher level of knowledge, but that they're really after what God's heart 
expresses in his full counsel. So I was just convicted like, yeah, you might be asking the wrong person. You probably are. So yeah, I'll keep everybody posted on how that goes. That being said, <laughs> but nonetheless, Jesse's going to be like, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Yeah. I, honestly, I think there's going to be some Paul washer action that I'm going to feel convicted because I'm going to be like, I'm also clapping myself. You know, like it's going to be like this <laughs> conviction. But I've shared before, like when it comes to knowledge, I think that we often underestimate, undervalue the fact that all of the knowledge that God gives us and the turn of mind that God gives us for like a proclivity or an interest in particular knowledge. Like if you're a doctor, like be a doctor. If you work in finance, do all the finance you can possibly do. If uh, you have a turn of mind for agriculture or farming or botany, like this is the way God makes no mistakes, including in the mind. He does these things to bring about a great royal priesthood for himself, to represent himself and to bring worship and honor into every aspect and sphere of life, professional and unofficial, all combined. He's that good. So I think I've said before, I was really convicted when I was reading something from A.W. Tozer, and I think it's in the, in the Pursuit of God, where in just the introductions, this, this to him is like a throwaway. Like he's just, he's not even in the meat of what he's about to say. He talks about, studying Shakespeare on his knees, that God would be his teacher, his illuminator in all things of life. I think that's like where we have to start. Like, it's not as if like, wouldn't it be great if you became a better student of theology? Yeah, you and I, I mean, people are going to know, we're not ashamed about that. Like right. to know more about God is to be able to worship him better, like full stop. Um, but also like go after, take domain over the the purview that God has given you and the mind and the interest and the intellect that God has given you. So like if H, if HVAC is like your jam, then like really for, and I mean this literally, for the love of God, would you go and pursue that thing and yeah. ask, would you go on your knees and ask the Lord that he would educate you as your teacher in that way so you might serve him and love others better? So maybe I'm just denying against this adjective that would say to us like, well, there's higher and lower knowledge here. The higher knowledge is always theology. I'm not sure that's true, honestly. And and I'm I may say that this is like a theological podcast. Yeah. So like I understand you can just turn it off at this point. But what I'm saying is like there is there comes a point, I think there is like this tension space where we just say, like, well, I need to go after higher and higher or more esoteric, more complicated errors theology. That actually might not be the most thing that is the greatest blessing and the greatest benefit to our lives. God has made us for an interest, and that interest is undoubtedly in him. It is also for good work, raising families and serving our churches and music and like, you know, serving others at Chick-fil-A and you know what I mean? Like all these things God gives us. So if we pursue him as our teacher, as the ultimate source of knowledge in those things, saying like God doesn't make like accidental knowledge, that is, then what we can do is we can reserve ourselves and rest assured that when we pray that way. He will come like he did for Daniel and equip us with the kind of knowledge that will help us to be the best servants possible in the sphere of influence with the turn of mind that he's actually given us. Yeah. 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 That makes me, makes me think, um, I, maybe this isn't a good segue, but this is what came to mind. You know, Joseph, um, we're in mid February now. So most of us have made it through Genesis in our uh, Bible reading plans probably stalling out in Leviticus any day now. And um, the the Joseph account comes to mind. And Joseph was given some supernatural knowledge of the fact that there was going to be a famine. 
right? That right. there was going to be these um, several years of really good bumper crops and then several years of just terrible crops. So he was given some supernatural knowledge and insight into the future, but the the wisdom to uh, set aside a portion of crops during the good times so that you can make it through the bad times, there's nothing supernatural about that knowledge. Right, right? exactly. Um, and, and maybe I should rephrase that. There's nothing uh, unusually supernatural about that knowledge, right? right? That was still insight from the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this is one of those things, this actually leads into my denial. Um, I don't know what I'm going to call this, but it's it's kind of the opposite of common grace. So I was reading, um, and, and you'll, you'll understand what I mean in a second here. I was reading in uh, Ryan Holiday's Daily Dad, which is um, uh, just a daily. It's it's weird. He almost he's writing, he's written these two books, The Daily Stoic and The Daily Dad, which are basically like devotionals for stoicism, um, or right. devotionals for parenting. It's a short page long meditation or page long reflection uh, each day on like a quote or a topic. So it's basically a devotional, but it's uh, in in the former it's stoicism, in this in the latter it's just kind of practical parenting advice. And the the daily dad entry for today was basically taking the account of the prodigal son and using the father in the uh, account as like an example of how to be a good parent that like you, you overlook their faults. You, you, uh, you allow them to come back. You forgive them. All of those are of course good things. And I have a two year old, so he hasn't done anything that would ever require me to forgive him yet. He's not at that age yet, but this is like the opposite of common grace. And this is, I, I think, ties into what we were just talking about. In a certain sense, Ryan Holiday has studied God's word and come away with like practical elements that totally misses the point of the passage. Right. Now, of course, God is the the supreme father and all fathers should, in some sense, seek to emulate God's fatherhood. Right. I mean, Paul says that like every family on earth is named after God. And and that means in a certain sense that like what it means to be a good father is to reflect God's uh, fatherly love for his people in, in an analogical sense. But Holiday comes away from this basically thinking or basically acting as though the prodigal son parable is all about how to be a good dad. <laughs> and And in a sense, it is if you're talking about how God is the ultimate heavenly father and he's a good father. But if, if it's really just like practical parenting advice by way of this interesting story, then that really isn't worthwhile. And I think this is a good example, because sometimes I think we come to the scriptures, um, even as Christians, we come to the scriptures, or or even maybe just broader than the scriptures. We come to our favorite theology book, we come to our favorite Christian devotional book, whatever it might be, we come to it almost trying to figure out how do we improve our own lives, how do we improve our own status, our own whatever, rather than coming to it with this idea of how do we more effectively glorify and enjoy God? How do we more effectively glorify and enjoy the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? How do we more effectively serve Him by preaching the gospel, by proclaiming the gospel? And I don't want anyone to misunderstand what we're saying, that reading theology is a worthwhile pursuit. Um, And I I would say academically, and when we're talking about the academy and we're talking about um, intellectual knowledge, which has its own value, I would say that theology is the queen of the sciences, right? I, I'm with B.B. Warfield on that. 
that the other sciences, all of the other sciences, whether they're soft sciences, philosophical sciences, whatever, or hard sciences, all of those are subservient to knowing and loving and understanding God better. And that the science of knowing and loving and understanding God better is theology. But that doesn't mean that theological pursuits or theological studies outside of the academy um, are somehow in a privileged position of knowing and understanding God. Um, even with, uh, this is going to sound controversial, but even with uh, theology being the study of revealed doctrine, which is is another way to define what theology is, we're still studying a created effect that God has put into place, right? The Bible is a created effect. It's a, cre- it's a creation. Um, we're not ever accessing divine truth uh, directly or immediately. It's always mediated through something. And so this, the Heidelberg Catechism, this is one of the places that I would point to the, maybe it's not the Heidelberg, it might be the Belgian Confession, but I would point to the three forms of unity over and against, not against, over the Westminster Standards in that the the uh, three forms of unity explicitly talk about God's two books, the book of nature. We understand God through his general revelation, which we understand through nature and reflection upon the way that God has created, natural principles. And then the book of his special relation, revelation, which is for us, um, is scripture. So I just think we have to be really cautious to come to our theological studies, whether it's actual like traditional studies of seminary or traditional studies of picking up a book and reading or trying to write a paper or an article, or whether it's our studies in listening to a theological podcast or or watching a movie or a documentary on something of a theological nature. We have to come to that not just to advance our own knowledge, but to advance our own relationship with God, to advance our understanding and enjoyment of God so that we may glorify Him more. And I think we have to be careful not to come to those things uh, in a sort of naturalistic, I want to improve myself way, the way that we see, oftentimes we see non-Christians like Ryan Holiday um, appropriate the scriptures for reasons very different than what it's intended for. Right. And that's one of those interesting things where you're going to see, and we've talked about this before, where that common grace is a for real quantity. There's going to be principles there that are worth emulating, but they become dislocated from their actual source and their true meaning. But that derivative meaning in some ways is still noble. It's not like this full expression of the nobility. It is derivative. That's the whole purpose of something that is not the exact thing. It's not the underlying, it's something connected to it. So We've talked about this before. This is, you know, Paul writing for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, things like his eternal power and his divine nature, they've clearly been seen being understood through what has been made so that they talking about all people are without excuse for even though they knew God. So in some way, Paul has somebody like Ryan Holiday and us in mind for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, which is often what these things are, right? They are representations of something that they believe to be good. They understand innately to be good. They're speculations in that way. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So while like the latter part of that list, we say like, well, we understand that to mean in some ways like explicit idols, this idea that there might be an idolization of fatherhood, for instance, 
that there are great principles that we ought to emulate. That itself can become this kind of corruption of the incorruptible God, to your point, right? Like, there's nothing wrong. And I hope people will read that book, especially people who do not know who God is, yeah. and see that there's something in fatherhood that is transcendent and ought to be emulated and that has like a purity of responsibility and authority that ought to be respected and applied unto the life and implicated and exemplified for children. And yet at the same time, like you're saying, we understand that to just like employ the prodigal son as like a great expl explanation of a father who is gracious yeah. is to totally miss the gracious father, right? Like it's not even to get halfway to what it means, but there's nothing wrong at trying to, for us to like see that father is something great because ultimately in every expression, the shadowhood of fatherhood represented in the temporal sense is that shadow of God, the father as well. So it's interesting. I'm totally with you. It's like, we're saying at the same time, we can respect and understand these principles. At the same time, we can clearly say that they fall short of what they're exactly meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's right on. And, and we just have to come to whatever we're doing. I mean, I guess this is like the, the sub episode of this episode. There's no <laughs> transition. I've been trying to think of how do we transition this into the topic. It's a totally different topic. We can. But the, the sub, the subtopic here is, is, is simply that all things that we do, whether it's studying theology or whether it is, going to work at a bank or a hospital or wherever we may work right. in our, our secular uh, vocation um, or, or our, our sacred vocation, right? There are people who listen to this show that are pastors, right? It's not different. It's not different in terms of um, how you approach your job, how you approach your vocation between being a pastor and being a, um, and in some sense, like this is the, this is one of the key insights of the Reformation, Right, those who are called into sacred ministry, um, I would say maybe it's a higher calling uh, in, in a certain sense, but it's not a more holy calling. It's not a more uh, Godward or godly calling to be a minister than it is to be a janitor or a guy who sells burgers yeah. at McDonald's or a banker exactly. or a patient relations specialist, whatever it is. Right. Um, we do all things unto the glory of God for the enjoyment of God. Um, and that doesn't doesn't change with our vocation or with what we're studying. And that same um, insight of the Reformation applies to the same kind of like principle we're talking about, that what we study, what we what we learn, whether I'm studying for an exam uh, for a biology test, if I'm pre-med or whether I'm studying for, a Greek exam because I'm doing exegesis studies at seminary, it's still for the glory of God and unto his enjoyment um, and for his purposes. So yeah, I wish I could figure out a way to like smoothly transition us into our topic because that's our bread and butter, but I just, I just can't yes. do it. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that people know it's that we are super slick with somehow true. moving from one topic to the other, but you're right. Let's talk. Let's talk about this armor. Let's get into it. And I guess it's not completely disconnected, but yeah. we've been hanging out in Ephesians six. And if you're not like operating a motor vehicle or like a backhoe right now, you can join us there if you want to pull up your scriptures or go to Logos Logos Bible software. Both are great. Not a sponsor. So 
let's Lovis read from well yeah i mean kind of like but right like now yeah right like, <laughs> well, goes, where, where are you at we continue to plug you because we just we just use your stuff all the time where are you at so let's go to Ephesians chapter six and uh, rather than read all of like kind of the prolegomena, like this amazing buildup, and it is really good. I mean, if we know one thing about the apostle Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's getting after it. He's fantastic in his writing, especially his epistles. But let's start in verse 13. So we're going to get into this full armor. So Paul writes, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And here we go for this episode. In addition to all of that, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Yeah, there's the transition. Now, this is kind of like the first time so far in the series. We've come to a little bit more... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> say in all circumstances that's the transition it was like yes. right there in front of me yes you're not wrong like and we're getting a little bit more contact like let me say this way a little bit more color on this one yeah. you know there, there's some description some language some analogical verbiage around the other pieces that we talked about here but this one we get something about what this is for and it, it directly implicates how we're supposed to use it now we, I think we already said that made this point before, but it probably bears repeating. This armor of God, it's called that because its components are not of our own making. Right. This is like the gift of God, and we've talked a lot about the armor of God. Is really all of this massive metaphor to say what it means to put on Christ as a practitioner, as somebody who's pragmatic about the faith, and then we get specific language, which should make us feel good about a shield of faith. So there is this recipe God is putting together for us to help us defeat and to stand firm against this evil one. And then we get something about maybe the the kind of attack that's coming against us and the kind of thing that we need to defend against this attack. So in this, all I'm trying to say is we got a lot of great things to unpack. And there's no way we're going to be able to do that in 29 minutes. So we're just going to try to do everything that we can possibly do. And then you're all reasonable people. And we leave you all to go back to the scriptures and unpack it as well for yourself. So where do you want to start, Tony? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the phrase "in all circumstances" um, or "in all things" is probably more accurate. Um, this is a this is a, a implement of war that we take up in every circumstance, right? So, I've never been in a battle. I'm not a warrior. I'm not a soldier, but um, I, I do know enough about uh, the military that you don't bring every piece of equipment to every single situation. But what Paul is saying here is in every situation, this is a piece of equipment you bring with you Right, is the shield of faith. And and one of the things we've been trying to kind of land on in this series is that all of these different um, pieces of armor or pieces of equipment that are being uh, enumerated and described, they really are all kind of um, angles on the same reality that we, we put on Christ in salvation, and because we have put on Christ in salvation, we now are victorious against uh, these spiritual forces that are opposing us. So same thing Paul's talking about in Romans when he says, who can who can be the accuser of God's elect, right? There's now, no, now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, 
The shield of faith is this particular element of it in that everything we do as a Christian is to be characterized by faith. We've talked about this before, that if, if it doesn't come from faith, then it is sin. And so we take up this, this shield of faith in every circumstance. This is just, like I said, I don't know why this wasn't right, right. out in front of me. Like this is the transition we just missed is no matter what we're doing, no matter what vocation we're in, no matter what situation we're in, we bring with us our Christian faith, because that's just a part of who we are. And so in all circumstances, you take up this shield of faith. And I also think it's it's interesting, um, you know, I think sometimes, um, even in these passages, we can get a little overly obsessive about like nuances of, well, this word for shield was used rather than this word for shield or this word for sword rather than this word for sword. But the word for shield here is a particular kind of shield, right? So when we think of a shield, um, and maybe, maybe it's just me. I think of like a handheld something that like you're able to move around and like, it's kind of like versatile. The shield that Paul is talking about is a particular kind of shield that actually would have been large enough for an entire person to hide behind. So we're not talking about like this thing, this thing that we wield, that we move around in order to affect a particular area being blocked. We're talking about like a wall that we place up in front of us that we can hide our entire person behind. And that wall is our faith. So there's no element of our person. There's no element of our life that that should not be brought under the protection of this shield of faith that Paul is is uh, is exhorting us to take up in all circumstances. It's a a comprehensive defense for all areas of our life in all circumstances of our life. And I think that I think you you could quibble about like what's the central piece of armor in this whole list of things and. Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. But if you were to ask me what is the most important or the most central piece of armor in this whole thing, it's this shield, right? Even if you don't, let's say some hypothetical situation where you don't have the breastplate of righteousness, right? This shield is still protecting you. It's still covering your entire body from the attack of the enemy. And I think that's that's really the key here. Our faith in Christ uh, our faith in Christ is what protects us, and it protects all of us at all times, in all circumstances, from uh, from the attack of the enemy. Yeah, I like that. I mean, there's this sense in which, so you ready for me to take this to like maybe a, the next level of nuance, which some would argue is like unnecessary? Let's nuance this, buddy. <laughs> so I think there is something to that specific use of the word for shield here that's connoting something that's not like, this portable, like little thing that chills in your arm yeah. that you can like easily maneuver, like you could be nimble about it. You're right, of course. Like we're talking about like a massive piece of equipment here, like a full body protection, which I think fits in with what Paul is trying to emphasize here, that this is something that God does. In other words, he provides the equipment. You wouldn't even be able to maneuver or manage this on your own. He must provide it for you. And if it is providing protection, then it's not because like you somehow elevate yourself, like you've done a lot of like push-ups or like, I don't know, mountain climbers. And you're like, you've got a ripped core and like bicep and you can like just manhandle this thing and use it. By the way, we can even go in this direction. Like often this type of shield was like joined to the shields of the neighbors around it, of yeah, course, to provide like protection for the masses. We can talk about that. And probably we can't because we have no time, but just that's just like free of charge, which again, the whole podcast is. Beyond that, 
I think what we have here is the sense that like God is the one that is, of course, providing this faith, like this shield itself, the ability to wield it is wrought not by one's own ability to equip themselves and then even prepare and practice for and ready themselves for battle. But because in that moment of battle, God provides all the strength, agility, and the equipment necessary for this faith to be manifest in such a profound way that it actually provides production. And the beauty here is that we don't have to stray at all from the scriptures to understand this because the scripture is frequently referring to the Lord as our shield. That's like Genesis 15, Psalm 5, Proverbs 30. So when we take up the shield of faith, it means necessarily that we rest in the Lord, in Christ himself. This is the beauty of God's word oftentimes is that it just tells us plainly the way it is. Like we don't have to worry about trying to like, make this a great, some kind of great, like analogical or like deep language here. This is what God is telling us. The Holy Spirit has joined us to Christ and our supernatural faith is like a shield because it continually lays hold of Christ who covers us with his righteousness and makes us immune to the attacks of Satan. I love, and I think we should make this like a game of some kind, though it's like, would be unnecessary because I think it happens naturally, but how many times you and I reference Romans 8, which possibly, and I'm just drawing from the Puritans. So don't at us, like find the, I don't know, find the email just like Puritans at reformbrotherhood.com <laughs> who, who routinely said Romans 8 is like the best chapter of the Bible. Yeah. Like all the Bible is inspired by God, is useful and, you know, for all those things. However, again, if you're about to go into glory, you're about to die. Yeah. And your choice is like, you can only have five minutes to read. Certainly, go ahead and read some genealogy if that's your jam. That's fine. I'm going to go to Romans 8. And to your point, in that passage, it's like literally bookended. It starts with, there is therefore no condemnation. So it starts with no separation from God. And how does it end? Listen, nothing, not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not things present, not things in the future, not height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And so like there's a pure bookmark, this pure bookend rather, of like you will not be separated from God from sin through Jesus Christ. You will not be separated from any single thing from God. And so we find in that the shield of faith is that verification, that assurity that we aren't in fact separated from God at all because he himself provides the protection so that we are separated from the devil and his evil schemes and united to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also, um, we think of a shield, we think of it as mostly a passive, uh, a passive instrument of some sort, right? A shield is something you put up and it, it deflects or it, um, the, the, the efficacy of a shield is in the fact that it isn't moved or that it isn't right. active. Now I, I I'm sure some someone out there is like I'm an expert in shield warfare and it's a very I, okay whatever I get that yeah you can email us at Puritans yeah you can email us at I don't care at reformedbrotherhood.com <laughs> but but in reality like in the way that we think about a shield in the way that shields are usually used the strength of a shield is in the fact that like it deflects things it's it's not an active element it's not you're not like using a shield in most cases to like go out and gain ground or to like do damage. 
yes, I guess you could hit someone with a shield, but there's more effective ways to do that. But what's really interesting about this passage and something that I think we should think about, because I think sometimes we think about faith in this same way that faith is like this passive thing. Like it's this, sure, it's this thing we possess or this thing that we engage in, but it doesn't really do anything. Well, what what's interesting about this passage is that the shield of faith doesn't just deflect or block the flaming darts of the evil one. It actually extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil ones. Yeah, right. Right. And so this this the picture that's being used is these, it's not just arrows that are coming at you, right? It's a, I guess a regular shield could block an arrow, I guess. Um, but if that arrow's on fire and your shield is made of wood, then you have a problem, right? Because the wood is going to catch on fire and then your shield is no longer valuable. It might actually be a liability in that case, because now you've got a a piece of wood strapped to your arm or whatever that's on fire. And that's not a good thing. But this shield not only protects us and deflects or sort of like redirects or prevents these arrows from getting to us, but it actually neutralizes these flaming darts of the evil one. Yes. Right. So there's no special like Greek insight into what this means. There's no like special Greek word for flaming. Like we're just talking about sharp projectiles that are on fire is, is the literal way that the language is here. But I think it's, it's um, everything about um, this passage sort of like subverts the expectations, right? I've heard, I've heard like sermons that talk about how like, well, the only offensive element of this is the sword of the spirit. That's the only one that we go like, and we actually like are aggressive with. Well, I've also heard sermons that are talking about how that's a particular kind of sword. That's a defensive sword. That's why I'm really gun shy of like overly investing in the particularity of like what kind of sword is being referenced, what kind of right. shield is being referenced, because I just don't think that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that we have this faith that is granted to us by the Holy spirit and this faith not only protects us from the devil's attacks, not only is it this barrier that keeps the devil from getting to us, but it neutralizes the efficacy of the devil's attacks by extinguishing yes. them. Right, on. right? So the devil comes at us, he's got some sort of attack that is powerful and is assertive and has power um, and it has efficacy, and faith allows us faith causes that efficacy to be neutralized. I think right. that's a really key element of this. Sometimes I think we look at this and we're like, we think the word flaming in this passage or the word extinguish in this passage are almost just like, they're almost just like flavor text. Like we're just trying to give uh, a little bit more uh, character to what's going on. Right. right. These are not weasel words. They're not just there for emphasis. They're there because they tell a reality Paul is explaining a spiritual reality. We wrestle yes. against these spiritual powers, these spiritual forces, and they're attacking us in this active fashion. And out of all of the parts, pieces of the armor of God that Paul is enumerating here, it's faith that extinguishes and depowers the attacks of the evil one. So when we want to think about how it is that we overcome the devil, right? Last week I said that we actually overcome the devil, right? There's an actual reality to the fact that God empowers us to overcome the devil. We are active in the overcoming of the devil. When we resist him, he flees from us. 
That's empowered by the Holy Spirit, but it is still us resisting him. In the same way or in a similar way, when we engage, when we exercise faith, when we exercise our faith, we extinguish the power of the devil, right? Right. Now that all comes from God. It's all empowered by God. It's interesting because Jude says, there's this passage in Jude where it basically says like one of the things going on with false teachers is that they were almost blasphemously slandering uh, spiritual forces. And, and even the Lord, uh, even the Lord didn't do that. Um, or sorry, even Michael didn't do that when he was opposing uh, the devil. He used the Lord's power to do that. But he still opposed the devil. He still opposed the evil one. So I think we should we should come away from this passage recognizing that this shield of faith is something that God gives us, but we are still the ones who are exercising that faith. And this is right. this is the um, the constant tension of reformed understandings of grace and providence and sovereignty is that on one hand, of course, it is God and God alone who does this, but on the other hand, He is doing that through us and through our our exercise of faith and our, our, I'm even struggling for how to explain this, but like our action and our um, perspective and our exercise of faith, God is using that and he's empowering that, but it doesn't render it somehow not our exercise of faith. And it may be helpful to make that call like super clearing right now, because there may be some hearing this and thinking, you know, that let's say you're in a place, uh, you're in a desert in your life, or you're in a place where you feel like there's intractable sin or there's intractable guilt and shame. The message here that's clear for all of us is that our savior is the one that breaks those chains. He comes in power. He doesn't come just to prevent the enemy from making stronger footholds, but to remove those footholds. That is God's jam. His mighty and outstretched arm, no one can stop. No one can thwart what he endeavors to do. So the great hope for all of us is that this shield of faith not only surrounds us, but it is a chain breaker. It is a way that allows us to go and gain new ground. It is a way that allows us to go into the darkness and to bring the light because God himself goes with us. And our God is always an advancing God, not a retreating God, not a God who stays in the same position and just merely tries to maintain the authority that he has, but is always pushing out the margins of that authority because he's in control of all things. And he empowers his people to go out and to do that thing as his emissaries, as his advocates. So here's the reason why I know this. This is Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, you and I, in the great tradition of the Reformed faith, would say this rock on which Christ is saying that he's going to build this church is not Peter himself, but the confession that Peter brings forward, right. that this is the Son of God. And this idea, even here, is not necessarily that, well, 
all the church can do is sit back as hell tries to prevail against it. And these gates are going to stand immovable, but it is instead this idea that these gates move forward into the world as we continue the great commission of making disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them as such, and moving forward in the proclamation of the gospel, that God continues to conquer the world and our hearts, in addition, both at the macro and the micro level, because he is one to the shield of faith who always takes new, new ground. So all that to wrap around to like what you said, it's not waiting in anticipation that you're going to be attacked and therefore hoping that somehow you'll be able to persevere against that attack, but that even as these darts come at you, their extinguishment is to say that Christ is in control, that he is the great victor, that he comes and he fights for us and he fights with us. That again, if we were to ask, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, does God stand with you? They would say, let me tell you who the fourth man was in the fire. Yeah. And the bottom line is that this is an aggressive tool that we ought to say, we ought to be praying to the Lord, Lord, where, where there are pockets in my life, where there is unconfessed sin, where there are intractable bad habits, where there are pieces that are not turned over to you, where we feel like we are totally subdued by the natural man. Would you come and bring victory and breakthrough? And to maybe even like finally like wrap around all the way back to the beginning about this idea of like reading and knowledge processing, all that stuff, which is great. Sometimes we think that we need the next great book. We need to find the next great commentary, the next great dead theologian to illuminate something for us. What we're really after is breakthrough. And God can bring that absent all those things. He predominantly brings that through just the preaching and the proclamation of his word and the administration of the sacraments. That is the kind of breakthrough that we desperately need. It does sometimes come by way of those other things, but only in the most derivative sense, because the best of those things will always point us back to the proclamation of the gospel yeah. and the administration of the sacraments. And so we desperately need God to bring breakthrough and he promises through this equipment that happens in this armor, that he will bring the breakthrough, like you're saying, Tony, as we wield these things, and therein lies like that glorious, beautiful tension. Yeah, yeah. I don't know any better way to say it than that. I mean, I think, I think that we oftentimes just don't realize that God has empowered his people to have victory, right? Like, mm. on one level, it seems so... Uh, so alien given the world that we live in and, and the nature of how things just seem to be. Um, some of this is like, uh, I don't want to bag on our dispensational brothers and sisters, but dispensationalism being kind of the predominant view of the evangelical church has this perspective that like things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until finally God kind of like gets fed up with it and just blasts the whole thing into oblivion and starts over. That's not really the picture that the Bible gives us. I'm not a post mill. Like I'm not going that, that post mill here, but God doesn't, God doesn't paint this picture in the scripture that like he is losing ground constantly until he finally gets fed up with losing ground right? God is gaining ground. And sometimes that he, sometimes he gains ground in a way that seems as though he's losing ground. Right. Right. Sometimes gaining ground is Joseph going into slavery. Yeah. Right, right on. Right. Yep. Sometimes gaining ground is Job, uh, scraping his skin with, 
with pot shards, right? Until finally God comes and says, I'm the Lord. And, and Job says, fine, I will cover my mouth and I won't speak anymore. Sometimes that's how God gains ground. But I, I also think sometimes God gains, gains ground just by the church existing in the world and by people participating in the ordinary means of grace. And that would include, um, although I, I wouldn't call this the means of grace in the same sense, but that would include like just reading your Bible in the morning every day or at evening every day, not in some legalistic slavish sense, but in the fact that these are the words of life that God has given us. Right. And in, in all of those things that we do, whether it's getting up on the Lord's day and and bringing ourselves into the assembly of God's people and worshiping with them and partaking of the Lord's supper and sitting under the preaching of the word, or whether it's reading your Bible in the morning or working on memorizing or praying with your spouse or teaching your kids the catechism, whatever it might be, and all of these things that God has given us to pursue him, to understand him, to know him more, those are the ways that we exercise and and those are the ways we take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. Right? When I I'll just like throw my own self out there. Whenever really tricky case at work, right? I work in a patient relations group where we we're getting complaints from patients who are having trouble with their care. Whenever really tricky case that I'm trying to work on, I oftentimes will just stop. I will actually like lock my computer so I don't have all the stuff up in front of me. And I will just ask God to help me navigate this case, right? In a way that glorifies him, that is full of integrity, that anyone looking at it uh, would, would see that there is a ring of truth and a ring of honesty and a ring of integrity to it, and that his will would be accomplished in me and through me in that particular circumstance. That is taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances, right? Maybe it's the... Um, Maybe it's the young couple that's struggling financially and they're just they're they're just really having a difficult time paying the bills. Well, taking up the shield of faith means trusting God that even when the bills are due, he is still good and he's still sovereign. He's still working all things for the good of God's people, and all things must be subservient to the elect of his people or to the salvation of the elect. Right? right, that is taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances, and I think we just should should not settle for kind of like this passive understanding of this. We need to really understand, and this is maybe this is the way I'll put it. We often look and and sort of like the the classic text to talk about like God's uh, God's intentions and actions are not operating on the same level as man's. Um, is Joseph, right? Joseph says on multiple occasions that what his brothers meant for evil, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. Well, we read that and we sort of think like, well, God can work good even when people mean bad. But also God works good when people mean good, right? right? When God's people try to do the right thing and they succeed, that is not contradictory to it being God's work. So we work because God wills and works in us. But that doesn't change that we work. So I guess if I was to phrase this in the form of like an exhortation, it's like, take up the shield of faith this week. Exactly. Take it up, right? We we are God's people. We are his faithful chosen people. And all we got to do is take up that shield of faith because God has already purposed for us to be victorious in our endeavors, whatever those might be. Yeah, we. I often at least joked in this podcast by saying, like, if you want some, come and get some. And that's not even remotely accurate here because it's <laughs> the intent here is basically like come and get some. You're gonna get some. 
Yeah. Because we're moving forward with the victory of Christ. And that, that victory starts with our testimony of how he's changed us and how we rely on him for strength to wield this massive piece of equipment that is beyond our strength and ability, right. but that he has given us, but that we're willing to try. And in, so to speak, that trying, not that we meritoriously earn its ability and efficaciousness, but that God honors the very thing that he established before the earth was even created and before time was a thing, that his people would persevere. And they persevere with on their arm, that shield of faith. That faith is the critical component. So I hope everybody goes away and feels like encouraged by this because I think sometimes in our form faith where we tend to be like a little bit stoic and for good reason, a little bit chill and for good reason, a little bit more for subdued and for all the good reasons that we sometimes miss out on the fact that our God is all power. He's all thrust. That is exactly what he does. And he brings that into our lives. And that's why Paul says, listen, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive within you. We can't even understand this power. And so I love to think about Paul writing to the, the people of Thessalonica, and he's talking about the gospel. Yeah. And we all know this, right? That the language he uses there, the literal and analogical language he uses of the gospel is the same word from which we draw the word dynamite. Yeah. And he's basically saying like God is dynamite. And the gospel message that you've been made alive in Christ, raised up in the heavenly places, received every blessing, spiritual blessing of Jesus Christ, is so explosive that it's dynamite in your lives. If only we could understand that, right? Like if only we could, we could receive one one-hundredth or one-tenth of that, and so therefore walk out the door, not just on the Lord's day, but every other day, and live according to the calling to which we've been called, which says that God has blown up all things in your way, and he's, he's given to you the shield of faith, so that you might be thoroughly equipped in every circumstance to withstand both the attacks that are coming at you, but you move forward unreservedly because you know you're protected. You don't have to worry, is there something that's going to snipe you? Because Paul makes explicit that thing that's trying to snipe you is a literally being quenched and extinguished yeah. by the equipment that God, in his foreordination, and by his great superimposing and sovereign will has given you to wield for your joy and for his glory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good way for us to, to wrap this up. We'll keep coming back to this armor of God for a couple more weeks here, at least. Um, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying this series because this is one of those, like uh, one of those opportunities for us to just like really, really, uh, slowly digest the scriptures to just like pick it apart word word for word, piece by piece. So I'm looking forward to what we've got coming up. If you um, if you've been blessed by this podcast, if if God has used this podcast to um, draw you closer to Him, to teach you more about how to glorify and enjoy Him, we would love it if you would partner with us. Um, the show doesn't cost a lot of money to produce, but it does cost some money to produce. And we've got a great group of people who support the show uh, through various means. And I wanted to make sure we kind of kind of share a couple of those options for you if you are interested in, in joining the family here. Um, you can join us by going to uh, patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. Uh, you can sign up for a monthly uh, contribution of some sort. 
Uh, Jesse and I have been clear since the beginning, ever since we've started talking about this, we want everything that we produce as part of the Reformed Brotherhood to be available. So uh, as at least as far as we're concerned, you're never going to find something behind a paywall. You're never going to find uh, some sort of special access because you've contributed money. But we can only do that because some people uh, have contributed money and contributed finances without actually gaining anything extra other than supporting us. So if that's something you think uh, you're on board with and you fulfilled your your obligation to your local church uh, and you have a little bit left over, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. The other way that, uh, just as, since we joked a little bit about Lagos and sponsoring the show, the other way you could actually support the show, and I think this is something we should probably talk about more than we, we do, but we are a, a Lagos affiliate. So if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Lagos, you can actually make a purchase of a base package. Right now, they're offering 20% off of any base package, uh, silver or above. Uh, there's a partner code that you can use. But if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Lagos, it brings you to our affiliate page. And we do get a, a, I think they call it a bounty. We've joked about that before. But we get a, we get a small portion of your purchase um, facilitated back to us. And we in the past have used that to improve our own Logos libraries, to be able to give us the ability to study God's word and study various theological perspectives to then bring those back to you. Um, if you are looking to uh, kind of level up your Bible study game, I know we joked about that a little bit, but Logos is a really good tool to use that really takes away some of the, um, I don't want to call them barriers, but some of the like, I don't know, uh, some of the challenges that people face sometimes when coming to God's word, they feel like they don't have the tools they need. Lagos really is a phenomenal tool to use for this. And if you go to that reformbrotherhood.com slash Lagos, if you make a purchase, um, you get a discount. And then also Jesse and I uh, get the ability to add some, some resources to our library, which then we hopefully will invest back into the show. So everybody wins. Uh, and if you're doing it and you're listening to the show, you actually win twice. So, uh, so those are a couple ways to support the show if you're so inclined. Uh, and, and we really just appreciate all of the different different people who encourage us. They pray for us. Yes. Um, they provide yes. topic suggestions, right? Jesse and I don't have to think about right. even what is it we're going to talk about. We're given topic suggestions and things that we can come with. Um, we really appreciate all the support. And if you're interested in doing that, those two ways are really good ways to do it. And there's a third way, right? You got to tell them about the third way. I don't know what the third way is. I mean, there's lots of, there's any number of things that could be. The well, third that, okay. Okay. That, that's true. But I'm thinking like you just said, like, listen, the show is free for everybody, but not free to actually put together and produce. But there is the other way. I was going to say third rail, but third rail has like a distinctly negative connotation. But that's like, true. you know, if you wanted, let's say, let's say that you wanted to get some like sweet, sweet Reform <laughs> Brotherhood swag and at the same time, maybe be able to support the podcast. How would one go about doing that? It's true. You can go to store.reformbrotherhood.com. And we don't have a lot of different merch options, but we do have some pretty sweet stuff on that uh, that shop website. Um, you can get stickers. You can get some cool drinkware. We have some cool uh, shirts and sweaters or sweatshirts. Um, we we run that at a pretty thin margin, so we don't we don't we're not charging you a ridiculous amount. Uh, but we do get a little bit of a kickback on that merchandise to help uh, continue to fund the show. And who doesn't love like a good sticker? You know, you can slap that on like your bullet journal or your laptop at work. And then when people are like, who are those two fools on your laptop? You can be like, listen, do you know Jesus? It's a great way to have a conversation <laughs> about all kinds of things. 
Sorry, I had to cough there and nobody heard it because I managed to mute it. But Jesse Listen. stopped talking and expected me to start talking and it was just it's, this dead air, which is just great. It was it was not great timing, but I just want everybody to know, this is how you know Tony is a consummate podcasting professional. That whole process, like that, it was an epic cough. Like I wasn't sure if he was about to fall off the chair. Somehow he had enough time to mute the microphone, make it happen and come back to you. And, and if we hadn't commented about it, you wouldn't have even known. You would have just thought it was an elongated pregnant pause <laughs> to build more dramatic effect. Tony was just really thinking about what he wanted to say. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I don't have anything else to say. So I think the best thing to say is until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Brothers. Let's start that over. I was trying to do, this is speaking of trying to say one thing and do something else.